So the question is, how many cycles should they run? And I understand that in Ontario, they might run 35 to 40. BC, it's around 35, we think. But other commentators are saying, when you run that many cycles, you may be finding evidence of the fragments, but you're not finding infectivity. A person might have been exposed to the COVID virus and has fragments that they find in their sample, but that person's not infectious. It's a positive, but I would call it a false positive. A real positive is a person who tests positive for the virus, but also is infectious and can transfer it to somebody else. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the field of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. In this episode, drug policy researcher Alan Castles and I take a deep look into some less than desirable tactics of the pharmaceutical and healthcare industries. Alan has been investigating and reporting on nefarious industry strategies for more than two decades, and his books, Selling Sickness and Seeking Sickness, expose the dirty underbelly that some corporations and leaders would rather you did not know about. If you have been satisfied with the mainstream COVID-19 narrative, this episode might be a bit disruptive. If you have been questioning it, then you might find some answers here, as well as some more questions. We discuss the limitations of PCR testing, the predominant testing model for determining COVID cases, the new Pfizer vaccine and the misleading propaganda related to it, COVID case numbers, and so-called protective measures. Going beyond COVID-19, Alan and I also explore questionable pharmaceutical selling strategies, conditions such as high cholesterol, osteoporosis, and hypertension, the industry of influenza, and drug safety advisories. If episode 28 with holistic pharmacist Rosemary Pierce opened up a few uncertainties for you about the motivations of the pharmaceutical industry, this episode is going to rip the lid right off. I hope you are stirred by this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Alan Castles. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for uh, inviting me. I'm really excited for what lay ahead here. I've been a big fan of your work since your first book, Selling Sickness, came out in 2005, which is basically an expose on how the pharmaceutical companies are turning us all into patients. And then you followed that up in 2012 with your book, Seeking Sickness, which is about medical screening and the misguided hunt for disease. I think these are very relevant concepts and topics in today's age. So I'm hoping we can jump into some of this and get some insight from you. Before we begin, I'm hoping maybe you can give the listeners just a little background on your credibility to be writing on topics like this and speaking on topics like this and and how you came into this field. Uh, so I've been doing pharmaceutical policy research for 25 years, basically working on projects, uh, federal or provincial projects, mostly looking at, at uh, pharmaceutical use, um, factors that influence prescribing, um, uh, disease creation, um, looking at uh, how um, physicians get information about pharmaceuticals, um, the effects of advertising, and uh, 
Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't call myself an academic. I'm more of a, more interested in taking these ideas and, and putting them in a form that, that, that ordinary citizens can understand and read. And so I, I, you know, I don't really spend a lot of time publishing academic journals, but I have, you know, written quite a few columns over the years and a couple of books and, uh, and I've actually done a little bit of radio broadcasting as well. Well, you have been uncovering corruption in the medical and pharmaceutical industry for a long time. And I'm wondering, how does the corruption that you have been uncovering over the last few decades compare with what you're seeing today? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I don't know whether I would call myself as one who uncovers corruption. It's more covering the corruption. <laughs> I mean, it's a, a lot of uh, what I write about and what I talk about is it seems to me is 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 in plain sight. I mean, just to give you a perfectly good uh, recent example, last week, uh, the world's biggest pharmaceutical company announced uh, interim trials of a vaccine for COVID-19. Um, huge trial, 40,000 or almost 40,000 patients enrolled. Um, they, uh, you know, so in a randomized trial, some of the patients would get the, the vaccine, some would get a placebo and they follow them for a certain period of time. And then they see how well the patients do in each group. That was really interesting to me because the study came out with lots of hoopla and lots of hype and a press release and almost no information. Uh, we are told that the drug or the vaccine, in this case, Pfizer's vaccine is 90% effective. And of course, I had to dig into those numbers because while they sound very impressive, um, they are what we call relative numbers, not absolute numbers. So um, when people hear 90%, they might say, well, um, the nine out of 10 people will be helped by the vaccine. Um, in this case, 94 people out of something like 21,000 um, people had get the placebo had a COVID-19 infection versus nine out of those that had the vaccine. So when you go from 94 down to nine, that's a, considered a 90% reduction. But when you think of the thousands of people that they had to vaccinate, we calculated that the, the number of people you would need to vaccinate to prevent one case of the infection is about one in 270. But of course, th this is something that I've been writing about and, and talking about for years. The 90% is designed to get everyone excited and to think that this is uh, extremely hopeful. And yes, this is a time we probably need a little bit of hope. But at the same time, it's a press release uh, produced by the marketers of the world's biggest drug companies' products and designed to confuse uh, consumers and impress investors. And we found out that the CEO of Pfizer the next day sold off something like uh, $5.5 million worth of his stock. So, of course, the stock shot up at the, uh, at the announcement of this, uh, um, this uh, vaccine trial. You know, people need good information, not marketing. And I think in this case, whether it's a vaccine or a drug, the marketing is harmful because in this case, it builds up expectations without giving people the full picture. For example, the press release contained no information about whether the vaccine prevented the things that we really come to care about, which is hospitalizations, 
extreme sickness or deaths. So there's no information there. Didn't tell us anything about whether the, the vaccine caused any side effects or adverse effects themselves. Doesn't tell you what kind of immunity or how long the immunity would last or whether it contributes to herd immunity, which means it would help you prevent you from passing on the virus to someone else. So a whole bunch of unknowns wrapped up in a narrative, which is we've created a wonderful vaccine. Our vet investors are very impressed and this is a really good thing. It's incredible. Uh, so what you're saying is basically this has a an efficacy one out of 270 people, so about a 0.4% yeah. versus the 90% that is being advertised. Yeah. And that 90% is because nine of the placebo patients versus 94-ish of the vaccine patients receive some sort of protection. It's the other way around. So, so about, Sorry. about nine people in the, in the vaccine group would have developed the virus or tested positive for the virus versus 94. Yeah. And so that's where this 90% efficacy comes from, which actually has nothing to do whatsoever with the efficacy of the vaccine. Well, it's just, it's just misleading. I mean, because when people hear the 90%, they figure, wow, you know, why would you not take a vaccine if it helps nine out of 10 people versus would you take a vaccine that helps maybe one in 250 or 270? That kind of uh, information is vital. And uh, unless you get both the benefit information and the harm information, i.e. how many people might have been harmed in the vaccine or the placebo group, uh, you can't make a good decision about it. Um, I, I don't know if I yeah. should, should pick on Pfizer or uh, they all do this. So, so this is not yes. unusual, this hyping of, uh, of trial results. We see it all the time, whether it's a vaccine for COVID or a vaccine for the flu or, or a drug for cholesterol lowering or a drug for hypertension. We see this kind of um, exaggeration of the numbers all the time. And it's, I, I would say it's getting a little bit better. It's not maybe as, as egregious as it used to be, but you know, still you see it and it's still misleading and, um, and we've got to call them on it. <laughs> You write about this in Selling Sickness, where it's quite often a, a drug company will come out saying this drug reduces your chance of X condition or disease yeah. by, let's call it 90%. Yeah. But when you actually look at what that means, the chance of someone getting X condition or disease is 1%. And so yeah. to reduce that by 90% means their net effect changes 0.9 percentage points and not 90. Exactly. Um, so, so I should also say that when you've got a trial that you have to involve and uh, enroll 40,000 people, you know that the likelihood of getting the thing that you're trying to treat or, or prevent is very low. I mean, 90 cases out of 21,000 people, that's pretty low. You don't, what we don't know also is was the patients in this trial did they come from a place where it's highly infective, where there's lots of uh, virus circulating? Or did it come from a place like, like Vancouver Island, where there's very little virus circulating? We don't know. And do we know if they actually exposed the vaccine recipients to the virus, or was it just natural exposure that they were looking for? It was for? just natural. It was just natural, I think. Um, okay. 
that that would be a whole different trial if they intentionally exposed uh, the patients to the, the virus uh, because it would be possibly yep. considered unethical, right? If you don't yet have a treatment for something and you're potentially harming people by exposing them to, to a virus, yeah. And you did mention the CEO cashing out on, on some stocks the day after the press release. And it's my understanding that this was something, a deal that was etched a number of months ago that was basically triggered by this press release, which to me either seems like they were planning to get this vaccine released in November or they were rushing to get this vaccine released in November to make that, that option a bit more lucrative. Maybe I'm just fishing on that one, but yeah, yeah. Who who really knows? Um, um, I I just know that from my my friends in the investment world, I saw the stock shoot up, and um, if you owned a lot of money in that stock, probably the quite possibly the the highest it will reach is when you're re- releasing interim results of a study, because oftentimes the inter- interim results will seem more impressive than the final results once you get the full data set and realize, well, you know, uh, the, the other thing that was kind of shocking about this is the, uh, is the cold chain that's required to transport the vaccine. Apparently it has to be kept almost at minus 70 degrees centigrade, which is wow. extremely cold. So none of us have a fridge or a freezer that, that keeps things that, that, <laughs> that cold. So it has to use sort of dry ice and these super freezers to transport the vaccine, which, yeah, might be okay in big cities, maybe in some specialty or, or uh, hospitals or boutique uh, healthcare situations where you can afford to store the vaccine. But th- to, in my mind, that makes it almost uh, impossible to, to, dis- to, to disseminate it. And do we know how how much time at room temperature it can spend before it is ineffective? Yeah, it, it did say that in the press release. I can't remember. It was a, it was a couple of days, I think. Uh, okay, so they tested approximately, I think you said forty two thousand people. Do we know over what length of time and if? I mean, you said the press release had very little information, but many of the side effects that are alleged to alleged to come from vaccines do take some time to come. And I find that since this has only been on the table now for maybe 11 or 12 months, depending on what sources you look at, it's, it seems rather quick to be having completed a 42,000 person trial. Yeah. So, so these are interim results. And I believe that um, the vaccine course is a two shot course given 28 days apart. So, um, I mean, the trial itself was probably less than two or three months old. Um, the, the longer trial, which, I mean, I think they should be following the patients up to two years. So we won't know for at least two years, whether there are any long, longer term effects uh, related to the the vaccine. I mean, th- this is why it's so controversial. Um, everything related to vaccines in this pandemic is because the emphasis on speed has been overwhelming. And yes, we want something fast, but we want something good too. We, we want something fast and effective. Uh, we want something that's fast and safe. And uh, safety uh, information takes a while to accumulate. Um, 
I can give you dozens of examples of drugs that have been um, used uh, widely and um, taken several years for us to realize the extent of harm that those drugs are causing. And then the drugs have to be taken off the market. Usually it's because when they get lawyers involved and uh, lawsuits happen um, and, uh, and drugs have to get withdrawn. So the, the speed can be a, a crucial factor in, um, in the number of people that end up getting hurt by a drug or a, or a vaccine. Um, I mean, the other, the other thing too is that um, it's possible that this virus might just go away. <laughs> you know? So we're spending all this money and all this effort for something that might appear to be pandemic level right now, but in a year from now might not affect anyone or we've developed enough immunity that people aren't being hospitalized or dying from it. Yeah, of course. And with this particular virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, it's my understanding that vaccine manufacturers have been trying to come up with a vaccine for SARS-related viruses since 2003 outbreak. And they have been very unsuccessful at doing that. And uh, on the contrary, they've actually caused significant harm, which is my understanding. Are you familiar with that at all? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know about the harm, but I will give you an example of the last flu vaccine, which has subsequently proven to cause harm. So this is the H1N1, which happened in sort of between 2008, 2009. I don't know if you remember. Um, uh, yeah. it, was, it was also declared a pandemic and, um, and this vaccine was developed and many people were vaccinated. Well, and the vaccine seemed generally safe, effective, I guess. Um, but it wasn't until several years later when they studied the patients who had been vaccinated that they discovered those patients who were vaccinated for the H1N1 vaccine had a higher risk of developing other types of flus or other types of viruses uh, in the years that followed. A significantly, a significantly, uh, statistically significantly higher risk of developing other types of flu, which is to say that the vaccine may have prevented you from getting H1N1 in the year that it was circulating, but it caused some people to develop other flus in addition in the, in the following year. So, so we're doing something that we don't fully understand. By the way, that, that the major study on that was done here in British Columbia. And so when you, it's, when you, you know, it's like when you squeeze the, the, the balloon, uh, you might shorten one thing, but you might be causing problems in other areas. And what have we seen over the course of this year with influenza numbers? Have they um, been dropping while the COVID-19 numbers are increasing? I don't know. I haven't seen any uh, any recent data. Um, I would hypothesize that the flu season is going to be very low, partly partly because from two things, they usually look at the southern hemisphere and see how things worked out in Australia and New Zealand to predict what the flu season is going to be like. But in this year of of lockdowns and and you know huge amounts of public health advice about hand washing and social distancing and all that. I doubt the flu has much of a chance of getting around if there is one. Um, and so I think the, the, the risk of getting the flu this season compared to 
uh, previous years is probably probably a lot lower. I'm not, I don't know for sure, but I would suspect it's probably a lot lower. Um, a lot fewer people getting colds too, because we don't have the kind of contact that we usually do, right? Well, right. Yeah. Let's talk, I want to talk a bit more about the vaccines. And I'm not sure if you'll have this information or not, but so this current pandemic, COVID-19, allegedly is caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Do you know, Alan, if that virus has ever actually been isolated? Yeah, you're, you're asking a really um, hard question because apparently, I mean, and, and we can only go by what we read and what people say, it had been isolated by the Chinese uh, in Wuhan and that genetic code, uh, the RNA sequence was shared with researchers around the world. Um, the, 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 and, and I'm not an expert in this, by the way, so you can maybe take what I say with a grain of salt, but I, I, I think in order to, to test the effectiveness of the, of the PCR testing, which they use to determine whether someone has had uh, exposure to the virus, in order to determine that, whether that test is accurate and working properly, they actually need to test it against the actual virus. And my sense is they don't actually have the actual virus to test it against. Right. And that's consistent with what I've been finding and reading about and that they have isolated a genetic sequence, which is a snippet of the actual genome of the particular virus, but it's a very small fragment. And then from that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the PCR is identifying a small fragment of that fragment. Yes. Yes. And... I mean, the, and I've written an article about the PCR testing, uh, which was in the local Focus magazine, and the research in that. And I've, I spoke to a number of molecular biologists and forensic scientists who use PCR testing, who say that when you run the number of cycles that they do, and the cycle, just simply put, is a way that they heat and cool um, the sample in a way that causes it to multiply, so that they can detect. Um, the virus uh, in the sample. And they do this in a way that they also add a fluorescent marker to it, which will show up uh, if, the, uh, if the virus fragments are um, present. And so, you, so the question is how many cycles should they run? Uh, and I understand that in Ontario, they might run 35 to 40. In BC, it's around 35, we think. But other commentators are saying, when you run that many cycles, you may be finding evidence of the fragments, but you're not finding infectivity. So the, a person might have been exposed to, to the COVID uh, virus and has fragments that they find in their, in their um, sample, but that person's not infectious. And, and so... so <laughs> And so you would call that, it's a positive, but I would call it a false positive. A, a real positive is a person who tests positive for the virus, but also is infectious and can transfer it to somebody else. That, that's a positive worth worrying about. And that's why you would isolate somebody or, you know, they'd have to spend two weeks in quarantine. Um, so we've got, we've got all these numbers of cases here and well, around the world. Uh, Canada, they've been rising exponentially in the last month. And some would argue, and I think I would probably agree with that, 
is that there's a huge number of false positives, which is people are tested uh, and are told that they have, they have the infection, but it's false in the sense that they're not infectious to other people. Right. You might say, well, what's, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is it's incredibly disruptive to tell someone that they're infected with something and they're carrying a disease that could hurt other people when they're not. When in fact, they may just have the genetic sequence that they're looking for that indicates they have at some point in time been exposed. It doesn't even indicate it. It implicates that at some point yeah. in time they have been exposed to this coronavirus. Yeah. And perhaps that has become adopted into their own virome and it becomes part of their being, which, of course, we have a virome. We have a biome. We are filled with bacteria and viruses which help us be humans and help us to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if they are not infectious, well, then it more than likely means that that has just been integrated healthily into their system. With this PCR test, it's a binary test. Basically, it either says yes or no. And Carrie Mollis, who's the inventor of this test, said long ago that it's not really a medical diagnostic tool. It's more for research because of this amplification type of mechanism that needs to happen, they are not measuring for viral load. All that they are doing is, is amplifying X number of times, as you said, 30, 35, 40, until they're actually seeing that they have this snippet of genetic fragment that they're looking for. But it does not indicate in any way what sort of viral load someone has, if someone even has symptoms, and as you said, if they are infectious. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that pretty well nails it. I mean, at the end of the day, you might say, well, okay, is is this really a bad, is this a bad thing? Well, I th- I'll tell you what I think is bad about this situation is that you've got a test that people are putting huge amounts of confidence in and that the media reports daily these numbers without anybody saying, you know, these are estimates, these might not be accurate, these actually might be riddled with false positives and we could actually bring the temperature down a little bit. I, I find that, that, you know, there was a report out uh, yesterday about children's mental health during the pandemic here in British Columbia. And it was done, done by the, I think the Ministry of Children and Families, essentially saying that, that kids are showing high rates of, of depression, anxiety, PTSD due to, uh, well, probably due to the disruption in their lives caused by the pandemic. Um, but as adults, we have a responsibility to stop disease mongering, to stop walking people to the cliff and saying, we're about to fall in the ocean. Um, and I think there's far too much uh, sort of both media and social media uh, fear mongering that's happening out there. So people are deathly scared. I mean, you walk down the streets in Victoria and people are wearing masks. You see, you know, so, or people are driving their cars or riding their bikes and wearing masks. When we know that if there is a benefit of a mask, and I use that if with a big um, quotation marks around, if there is some benefit of the mask, it might be in uh, in a situation where an infected person might be in a crowded place and they're coughing or sneezing and the mask would prevent the 
expulsion of, of, of the virus. That, in that situation, you might say, well, okay, well, maybe a mask might be beneficial. But what the heck is going on when people are walking down the streets wearing masks or wearing masks in their cars or riding their bikes? That, that to me demonstrates a level of fear and it might be, well, I think it's fear, but it's, it's probably also um, a, a level of uh, social signaling or virtue signaling. I'm, I'm a good person, therefore I'm wearing a mask. Okay, well, you can, you, can, you can believe that. You're probably not doing any good. And that kind of uh, ramping up of the fear, as I said, there was a study done and, and it sounds like children in British Columbia anyways are, are, are suffering from, uh, from possibly mental health issues because of the fear. I, and, and I think all that's wrong. <laughs> uh, we, we could do this a lot more responsibly. The media could sort of uh, take the heat out and say, look, yes, this, this is something that we have to deal with. We have to protect people and so on, but not to the point where we're daily counting numbers and we're uh, wringing our hands and, and we're shaming people who choose to walk down the street without wearing masks, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I just recently interviewed two guests and we spoke of the masks and we spoke of the the potential health complications in wearing the mask and that they decrease our oxygen levels, increase our CO2 levels, thereby making our body more acidic and decreasing our immune system. Not to mention all those things that you just mentioned, the, the mental, emotional problems that are potentially developing, especially in our children. And the statistics, all that we ever see, as you said, are these tickers, which tell us about cases, but we're not seeing all of the other effects and impacts of the despair that is being caused around the globe. Yeah, That's all being kind of brushed, brushed aside. Yeah, I mean, we have heard about the opioid epidemic and how, you know, at one point there were more than 150 people a month dying in British Columbia. I don't know what it's like now. Um, so yeah, there, there are there are other things that that people are suffering, and um, you know it's kind of like um, he who dies with the least amount of virus wins. Well, no, <laughs> That's not the case. It's like there's lots of other things that uh, that might hurt people, including people avoiding the doctor for for legitimate reasons reasons you know somebody has the symptoms of a heart attack or a stroke and they don't get uh, medical help that's a problem um, it's a problem if uh, if people have you know serious untreated um, uh, mental health problems and so on and so but the, the, the public health message about controlling the virus often seems to eclipse everything else yeah it sure does. And we were originally told that we needed to lock everything down to help slow the spread, slow the the curve of this disease to not overwhelm our medical institutions. Uh, just moments ago, I pulled up the current ticker on BC CDC uh, to look at the coronavirus statistics. Total hospitalizations to date in BC are 1,171. Mm-hmm. Earlier, I counted up total hospitals in BC. There's 94. 
Right. You do the quick math, that's 12 hospitalizations per hospital All right. throughout this entire pandemic. Yeah. That's the curve apparently we've been trying to slow. And yeah. we've been told stories around the world that hospitals are being overwhelmed. Well, here in BC, we're averaging 12 per hospital. <laughs> not a day. Yeah. Not a month, but throughout the whole pandemic. Yeah, I did. I did some some elder, some math on the um, the whole issue about um, just the death rate in BC. You know, what's the normal death rate? And I can't remember the exact number, but they're saying there's five million people in British Columbia, and every year, um, what is it? There are fifty thousand deaths. Works out to about a hundred and works out to about 132 deaths a day from all causes. Okay. And so since the beginning of the pandemic, so we're eight months now, we've got 200 odd deaths, 260 or something like that. I mean, it's just, it's such a drop in the bucket. Uh, and and yeah. though if you are uncritically consuming news media about the the number of deaths and hospitalizations, you'd say, shit, you know, the um, our, our, our province is going to go under, our hospitals are going to be overwhelmed, uh, there's going to be dead people lying in the streets. That is a level of unthinkingness <laughs> that I find very curious. The same reason why I find it very curious that people wear masks while walking down the street. If you really thought about it, you're um and and looked at the big picture you wouldn't be nearly as as scared as you seem to act no and i know neither you nor i are trying to minimize the deaths because every death is of course a tragedy to someone and some family and friends but again by just looking at these statistics and focusing on this we're not taking into effect the deaths of despair the increase in suicide the increase in the deaths that you were discussing based on people not going to the hospitals out of fear, the increased stress levels, the mental health issues, yeah. the domestic abuse, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. Um, and it does seem to be a, a reaction that has been perhaps overdone to the point now where it's really hard to rein it back in. Yeah. So th l let me just flesh that out a little bit though. Yes, it's quite likely there are all kinds of other deaths which are not getting the attention and 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 maybe caused by by the pandemic i.e people avoiding essential medical care but at the same time and i've 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 talked and written about this as well so much of what we do in medicine is um is not important uh it's not it's not crucial um, you know, if you're a, a type two diabetic that controls your blood sugars well enough, um, you don't need to be going to the doctor every week or every month or checking your blood sugars obsessively. That's not good for you. You shouldn't be doing that. Um, or if you're someone that has borderline high blood pressure, obsessing about your, your blood pressure and going back to the doctor and getting more drugs and so on, that's not good for you either. You know, if we had a way to separate non-essential from essential medicine, um, we we do much better. And I think that a lot of people that aren't going to the doc doctor during the pandemic, it's a good thing. I mean, they're because most of the time, a lot of the time, the the trip to the doctor is probably a waste of their time. Uh, and 
has the added danger of being prescribed drugs that you don't need. <laughs> so, I mean, I, yes. I, I know I'm being a little simplistic here, Todd, but you know, we've in the, in the no, world of overdiagnosis, which is what I study, um, there is a number of areas in which we provide too much care. I mean, um, some some of the commentators were saying, well, you know, a lot of people will, will forego their cancer screenings. And I would say, well, if you've got a symptom and you need to get that symptom checked out, it might be a bad thing if, if the pandemic is preventing you from seeking medical care. But if you have no symptoms or otherwise healthy and just want to go on a fishing expedition of your prostate or your breasts or your colon and so on, there's a good chance that um, you're going to experience a false positive. I mean, this happens in breast cancer screening all the time. The vast majority of positives that happen in breast cancer screening are false positives. So you are actually causing psychological harm to women when you tell them that they might die of breast cancer, when in fact, what you're finding with your uh, mammography is often just um, um, normal, anomalies that you find in breast tissue. And so uh, those people who say, oh my goodness, we're, we're stopping all this cancer screening. I would say, yeah, that would be a bad thing if we were stopping it for people that have symptoms for which they could use uh, an, you know, a diagnostic or a, a screening procedure to determine what they've got. But for asymptomatic people like myself, male, 55 years old, tolls, told to get a a routine prostate uh, PSA test, which I know statistically, uh, if they find a positive, it's going to be most likely a false positive. And uh, the overall benefit to me would be very minimal. Um, I think that people avoiding unnecessary screening during the pandemic is a good thing. You, you've read my book, Seeking yeah. Sickness, where I've talked about many types of screening. Uh, I've only mentioned two cancer screenings, but um, in any way in which they're taking healthy people and looking for signs of disease, there's always going to be uh, people overdiagnosed. And that overdiagnosis right. comes, with, um, comes with severe consequences. It's not benign uh, if you end up getting surgery no, not at all. or something that you didn't need to get surgery for. And some of those tests are relatively safe. Mm -hmm. Some of those tests are not relatively safe. And where would you say mammograms fall on that spectrum? Well, depends what we mean by safe. Um, I think the actual act of the mammogram is, you know, very few people are, are hurt by that, though I've never had one. So <laughs> I don't really know. Right. Um, the, though... <laughs> I do know, and I've, I've written about this quite a bit, that the, that the, the number of, of women who have no symptoms and are told, oh, by the way, you're now 50 or 40, um, you should get a, a, a mammogram every one to two years. Um, we know within, say, a 10-year period, a good portion of those women are going to be told that they have a positive, which is requires more medical investigation. It might be another mammogram, uh, maybe a biopsy, and, and sometimes that would lead to surgery and so on. And you would say this is a good thing if mammography screening lowered the death rate by breast cancer, for breast cancer. 
You say, why, why, why wouldn't you do it? You know, it's going to save the lives of our sisters and mothers and daughters. Why wouldn't you do it? But when you look at the big trials, and, and frankly, breast cancer screening is one of the most studied types of, um, of screening we've got. When you look at the big trials, they have to screen thousands of people in order to save one life. Uh, it's something like one in 2,000 women uh, screened every year for 10 years to prevent one case of breast cancer. That's an awful lot of... To pre prevent a case or to uh, save, to save a life? life? Sorry, to save a life. Um, that is an awful lot of, of radiation. <laughs> um, yes. Which statistically is probably... One of the known causes of yeah. cancer. Yeah. Certainly when you start talking about screening with CT scans, and not, not for breast cancer, but you know, they're, they're using CT scans to screen for lung cancer. The, the, the yield on that procedure is so low as to be embarrassing. Uh, you have to screen thousands of people. Uh, you find all kinds of, um, of anomalies and scar tissue and, and things that you shouldn't be worried about in, in people's lungs. And that leads to all kinds of surgeries and, um, and so on. Um, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> screening is not the, the idea that screening saves lives is true, but it's not very true. It's true to the extent that it saves very few lives and causes an awful lot of suffering along the way. And I also found it very eye-opening what you wrote about, I believe, in selling sickness, how pharmaceutical companies are at least at that time, I presume still are, are changing the ranges for sickness and for their diagnostic criteria to include more and more healthy people into the range of sick or pre-sick oh, yeah. so that there can be pharmaceutical treatments for that. And I believe you talked about osteoporosis and the screening for what what values used to indicate osteoporosis, those numbers kept going down and down and down to lump more of the healthy population into it. And then we had pre-osteoporosis and osteopenia, and that meant more and more and more people were being prescribed drugs such as Fosamax. Is that accurate? That's very accurate. But you know, the best example about the pharmaceutical industry and the specialists changing the criteria, basically drawing the line at a different spot, has to be hypertension. You know, 20 years ago, mm -hmm. if your blood pressure was 150 over 90, the doctor would say, ah, mildly, okay, don't worry about it. Now, if a doctor doesn't treat a patient that has blood pressure of 150 over 90, they would be accused of malpractice. Well, what, what has changed? Well, over the years, it went from 150 to 140, and now they're talking about 130. 130 over 80 is the new normal. It's like, well, if you set the bar that low, most of us or a lot of us are going to be at or above that bar, which is we are patients for, um, we may be patients for, for drugs, but we're going to be told that, you know, you have prehypertension and that, um, and that you need to, uh, to change your diet, exercise, which all might be good things, but, or take this drug, which may or may not right. help as well. I mean, and you say, well, well, how did that happen? The big societies, cardiologists, um, societies of, of, um, of um, say, the American Heart Society and so on, very, very close connections to the pharmaceutical industry, the companies that make blood pressure-lowering drugs. 
And the lower that they put the bar, the bigger their market is. So if the bar is at 150, maybe only 20% of the population is over that. That's a small amount. Well, if the bar is 130, suddenly 50 or 60% of the population is a potential market for our drugs. And, I, and it's, it only goes in one direction, Todd. We see this with osteoporosis, with, uh, uh, which is bone density testing. We see it with uh, hypertension. We see it in cholesterol, which is probably one of the most egregious examples of disease mongering your blood. Um, they lower the bar at which they determine there might be some uh, disease and they start uh, prescribing and recommending people get treated. Um, and they haven't, they haven't, they're not contributing to the length and quality of your lives. They're contributing to the uh, profits of the drug companies that are selling the drugs. Yeah. And let's talk about hypertension for a minute because they are selling that as a disease or sickness. And yet hypertension in and of itself is not actually dangerous when it's at mild levels. It is basically a risk factor for cardiovascular diseases. Is that yeah, correct? Exactly. So, And there, there are many risk factors for cardiovascular disease. Hypertension is basically one of those, which let's give it a number and say that it, it makes up for maybe 5% of that risk factor. And so if you decrease your risk of hypertension by 50%, well, you're not decreasing your risk of heart attack by 50%. You're just decreasing that one particular risk factor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the whole, um, um, they have whole um, calculators. They're called cardiovascular risk calculators. And, and these are used almost as a, so you imagine a, a weigh scale as a calculator, uh, a scale that you stand on in the morning and it tells you how much you weigh. That, that, that is one uh, level of your health. Let's say your height and your weight uh, produces a number called the body mass index, right? So if it's 30 or above, yes. then you might be considered to be overweight. If it's over 35, you might be obese. So that's one number, but this, these calculators uh, involve maybe a dozen different numbers, your blood pressure, your BMI, your, your cholesterol level, um, a whole range of things. And through it, they can determine, say, a five or 10 year risk of having a heart attack or stroke. And they have been universally um, condemned, not condemned, condemned is too strong a word, you universally criticized for being for exaggerating the risks. So, uh, and they're all different too, right? So you might enter your numbers into one of these calculations and it says, Todd, you have a 6% risk of developing, uh, having a heart attack or stroke in the next five years. You do another calculator, your risk is 12%. What changed? Well, <laughs> the algorithm, algorithm that calculated your, uh, your risk. So, these calculators, people have to take them very much with a grain of salt. And you're right, something like hypertension is one of many risk factors. And uh, I mean, there are other risk factors that probably have much more impact on whether you're going to live a long and healthy life than just your blood pressure. Um, you know, we have found that, that, um, that when you look at the sort of the big hypertension trials, so these are the trials of hypertension drugs, 
you find some very interesting things in that older people, we'll say people 75 or older, do not need to control their blood pressure the same way they did when they were in their 30s or 40s. Why? Because as they get older, blood pressure can actually be pr protective. Uh, the problem though, is that we get this obsession with these targets, you know, it's gotta be 130 over 80. Well, we can't get grandma's blood pressure down to 130. So we have to give her three different drugs. Uh, next thing you know, she gets what's the opposite, which is hypotension. She gets low blood pressure. She stands up uh, beside her bed in the morning and passes out, faints because uh, she's dizzy and, and breaks a hip. Um, so in our, in our, and of course, you, if you're in your 70s or 80s and you break a hip, it can be very dangerous. You may end up hospitalized and, and um, have some pretty severe complications, including death. People die from, from complications of, of hip fractures. But, you know, and we arrive at, the, I'm not saying this happens all the time, but we think that it's a contributing factor to uh, 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 falls in the elderly is too much, um, too much effort on trying to lower their blood pressure. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And we also, in an episode I just published with a holistic pharmacist, Rosemary Pierce, she talked about the the medication side effect of making our body more acidic, which requires these buffering minerals to be leached from the bones to help balance the acid pH balance in the system. And by leaching those minerals from the bones, we're actually weakening the bones. And so by taking medications, especially chronic medications, polypharmacy over many years, we know we are actually weakening yes. the bones. That, that, that sounds true. Now, I find it interesting with these testing, as we talked about, the bar keeps getting lower to include more people. Now, it's different with SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus, because it's only a yes-no test. But what it seems that they are doing is by having this arbitrary amplification because there is not a standard, no testing centers seem to be uh, coming together to decide what should be the standard amplification. Some are using 30, some 35, some 40, some who knows more than that. And I've seen research showing that a 40 amplification would produce about 80 or 90 more positives, 80 or 90% more positives than a 35 amplification. And there are some laboratories that are actually coming up with a hundred percent positive rate. <laughs> so, so how can you make public health policy when you have a test that's so misused um, as to be unbelievable? I mean, they might say, Todd, I, I don't actually, that's I don't a great know question. What, what the Bonnie Henry and others would say, but they might say, look, it's the only test we've got. We know it's flawed, but we have to work with it. I might accept that if they also said whenever they announced these, you know, another 500 cases in this province or another thousand cases in that province, if they said, we believe that maybe half of these or 70% of these might be false positives and people are not actually infectious, but we're not sure. So we think people should take horny. Like I would, I would have much more trust if they were just kind of upfront and honest with the limitations. I mean, I guess that's my, my general right. sense with anything about medicine is that there are limitations, but when you come out with uh, pretty strong public health uh, recommendations and even mandatory things such as masks or maybe even down the road vaccines, you better have your ducks in order 
you better have the data to support that. Um, and I can tell you that, that some things in the past where they have brought in mandatory rules, I knew the data wasn't there. And a lot of us researchers in the field said, this is absurd. I mean, the best example probably is when they used to have the mandatory flu vaccine for all healthcare workers in British Columbia. This was brought in uh, probably 10 years ago. Um, it's been dropped, by the way. There are no more mandatory okay. flu shots. So you might say, well, what, what has changed? Well, we knew even when they brought it in, it was unlikely to have any effect. Um, say that positive yeah, a positive effect. effect so so they 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 and they they bring it in with the with the rationale oh this is going to protect our patients so we should get the flu shot well that sounds really good show me the evidence that vaccinating healthcare workers prevents prevents um show me a good clinical trial there isn't any <laughs> there, there isn't any uh, show me the, the the data even that that vaccinating a bunch of people in long-term care facilities reduces risks of uh, of influenza outbreaks. I don't believe there is any either. Yeah. Um, show me the data where you know they, they talk about the the vaccine um, uptake. Uh, flu, let's take the flu as a, as, a, as an example. Um, I read somewhere that the uptake of the flu shot amongst the elderly, older people in the Atlantic provinces, say Nova Scotia, is something like 75 or 80%, uh, which is very high. So they, you know, they line up dutifully yes. and get their flu shots uh, a lot more than we do in BC. In BC, it might be 50%, if that. So you could say, wow, okay, so if Nova Scotia has a, a influenza coverage of 80%, and BC has only 50%, then Nova Scotia must get way fewer cases of influenza and way fewer deaths. No, there's no data. In fact, in fact, they can't show any effect of, so, so when they say, oh, we need a, need a much higher uh, coverage for this flu vaccine, well, show me the jurisdictions that have these super high coverage rates, show me how low their, their uh, uh, influenza rates are. And, and they're not. I mean, right. so, 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 so we don't really, uh, and lately, I don't know if you've been hearing, but there's lots of emphasis that, you know, because of COVID, we all have to go out and get our flu shots, which strikes me as a non-evidence-based pronouncement, but also probably not necessary because, as I said, so much of the hygiene that we're being forced to do the distancing and the hand washing and the masking and all that stuff probably means that any flu virus circulating is going to have um, a very low likelihood of infecting other people. Right. But that doesn't stop the public health people from saying, get out there and get your flu shot and people wringing their hands and, and saying, Oh my goodness, we're out of the high dose flu. So, and as we know with the flu vaccine, each year it's also a crapshoot. Basically, they are predicting what virus may be in circulation. And you probably know better than I do that probably more often than not, they get it wrong. Yeah. Which means people are being vaccinated to something that is not actually even potentially a threat at that particular point in time and maybe weakening their immune system to something that is a greater threat. Yeah, and, and that, so we, even in the years where they get it right, i.e. a good match between the vaccine and the, 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 the vaccine might be 
around maybe 6% effective. So you got to vaccinate wow. a lot of people to prevent uh, um, um, cases of the flu. What you really want to do yeah. is, and that is you want to be able to prevent the things that count. Do people die from the flu? Do people, and yes, people do mm -hmm. get the flu and they get complications of the flu, which sometimes leads to pneumonia and it leads to death. But are those jurisdictions that have these widespread flu vaccine campaigns, do they have fewer cases of pneumonia and death related to flu? No. Do they have fewer cases of people being hospitalized or fewer people taking sick days? No. So they can't, they can't show that. And, uh, and you know, until they do, I, I think they should stop trying to propagandize the, the flu shot. Right. Mm -hmm. And when you speak of 6% efficacy, I'm assuming you're basing that on the actual data that's out there. Yeah. In, in a good year. Yeah. So in that's, good year. yeah. And that's certainly not a story that we're hearing. That's not the mainstream narrative. Get line up to get your flu shot because one and what is what's the math on that? One in eighteen of you are going to be protected, potentially. Um, yes, possibly. But of course, the numbers that you put in the street <laughs> are are you going to have a fifty or sixty or seventy percent effective vaccine? So again, as we started this conversation about the the COVID numbers the, the Pfizer vaccine that said is 90% effective that is almost pure marketing that's not science <laughs> no same with the 60% no. vaccine and that's supposedly 60% effective uh, tell us the real numbers can you create an effective vaccine without the actual virus having been isolated i don't know i i i, I uh, okay i i really don't know i um there, as you as you can imagine, there is billions of dollars being spent on that question right now. Um, you hope yeah. that that money's not all going to be wasted, and that maybe at the end of the day there will be something that's effective and hopefully safe. Um, I've said this before, though, because this is such a, I mean, it's a it's a, such a dominant subject. Any vaccine study that comes out is going to be so heavily scrutinized. Um, I, unlike most most research, people don't look closely at flu studies, and they, you know, for the most part, they just say, "Well, yeah, we were told that the flu is good, the flu shot's good, so we should get it." Well, I think in this case, when they come out with vaccines, um, they are going to undergo a level of scrutiny that is going to be global. And for, uh, for a, a vaccine to survive the kind of global scrutiny that's going to happen to it, um, it's going to have to be knocking it out of the park. And I've said this, I, I've said this for the last eight months, I doubt that is ever going to happen. I mean, if they have an right. effective vaccine that is proven to be safe, those are two components of it. The third thing is it has to be acceptable to the public. And that means it has to be affordable, easy to take, easy to transport, like a, a lot of things that you need to, to make it acceptable to people. And it has to be trusted. And if people can't trust the science on which the vaccine is based, I'm not talking about um, people who have knee-jerk sort of anti-vax uh, sentiment, but I'm talking people like myself, researchers, if you can't trust the data that goes into the uh, that, that lies behind the vaccine, 
then you're certainly not going to be recommending it to people if you can't trust the data. Right. And pharmaceutical companies, vaccine manufacturers are operating under 100% impunity, which means they cannot be held liable for any damages caused by any of their vaccines. Yeah, so th this is a problem because um, we don't have a compensation system in Canada. And, and I've written about this a number of times over the years that if you get in a car accident and get injured for life, there's a good chance that ICBC sure will cover you to make sure that you don't suffer for the rest of your life. If you fall out of a tree and the same thing happens or you fall out on the, on the work site, you know, WorkSafe BC, you will have some level of compensation. You get injured by a vaccine, then um, good luck getting any compensation. We simply have no system in Canada. And um, that's a problem. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a problem whenever you start saying we're going to have mandatory vaccines, which I, I doubt we're going to have. I, I really don't think that, uh, certainly in BC, and I've heard Bonnie Henry say this, that there's no appetite for mandatory vaccines. But from my perspective, unless you have a compensation system, there's no way in the world you can have a mandatory vaccine uh, policy. It would be like saying, we're gonna force you to drive your cars without seat belts, and, but you don't get any insurance. Right. Well, and it seems these vaccine manufacturers are being incentivized to push out product, which is basically being tested real time on the general public. And if it does cause any harm, well, they're not held responsible. Yeah, I mean, they, the, the, certainly not in Canada. <laughs> I mean, or in the well, US, in the, as it stands. The, the US, there has been cases of, of uh, compensation for people injured by vaccine. But, I mean, but the compensation comes from the Fed, the federal yeah, government. True. If you sue in the States for vaccine injury, you're suing the US Department of Justice. You're not suing Pfizer or any of the other manufacturers of vaccines. Yeah. So, do you think we need to have, um, a, a system in which um, people will be able to sue for damages if they're injured by vaccines? I think it seems strange that we have a system where people cannot pursue that route if there's evidence, especially strong evidence that indicates that they are. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. It, as you mentioned, car accidents, it would be like driving in a car and the brakes give out and that turns out to be a manufacturer's defect. Well, one would presume they could sue the, the car manufacturer and get a settlement for that, but that's not the case with vaccines. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think you're right, yeah. And I know you mentioned that perhaps there's no appetite for mandatory vaccines, but I found it interesting that the day after Pfizer's release, Ticketmaster, which of course sells concert tickets all over the world, they sent out their own press release saying that in 2021, to get into any of their concerts, you're gonna have to have proof of vaccination <laughs> or a neg or a negative COVID test within the past 48 hours. So I think we're going to see that happen a lot in the industry where there will be, it may not be a mandatory vaccine, but there will be fewer and fewer things that people can do without proof of that vaccine. Yeah, it seems, seems weird though, because as we know, if you take the, the Pfizer recent uh, study as any marker, if one in 270 people uh, might have some protection from the virus uh, by taking the vac by getting vaccinated. 
Ticketmaster thinks that's good enough. So the other, you know, the other 269 people <laughs> who are vaccinated, they can still get into the concert, but they're not protected at all. <laughs> no, I, I don't know if there are ever going to be answers to those leaps in logic, but yeah, these are the times we're in, I guess. Yeah. Alan, can you talk a bit about the drug safety advisory that you're working on? So, yeah. Um, so there is a group that, that, uh, that I'm working with actually just trying to summarize their work. They've, they've published a number of studies looking at drug safety advisories that have been, um, published uh, in four countries. So a drug safety advisory is say a drug uh, uh, has been on the market for several years and there are patients who are experiencing liver failure or liver toxicity. And that is highlighted as a, as a, as a, and they do a bit of research and they say, yeah, that's associated with the drug. Oftentimes, instead of taking the drug off the market, they will write what's called a dear doctor letter. And it goes out to all doctors and well, in Canada, US, and those letters advise them, oh yes, this drug now has um, has this warning associated with it. Please don't use it in these types of patients because of the potential. So those advisories, we, this study that I'm, I'm talking about, we looked at um, uh, four countries, Canada, the US, Australia, and the UK, and over a 10-year period from 2007 to 2016, and found that... Um, there were 1,440 safety advisories issued by these um, four countries, but the consistency between countries was less than 50%, which is to say, well, sorry, not less than 50%, less than 5%. So uh, if a, oh, wow. a, a, a drug gets a safety advisory in the U.S. saying this drug causes liver failure, that advisory only appeared in another country about 5% of the time. So... Incredible. We we have this situation, and it's the same drug. It's the same drug. It's the same company marketing the same drug, which is absurd. You would think that if a drug has a warning in Canada, that warning should apply to whatever country that drug is being sold. Um, and this is really important research because it just shows how um, lackadaisical the cooperation has been between countries around uh, warning people about the dangers of prescription drugs. It's just, it's terrible. Um, the, um, you know, one of the examples that I, that I've been writing about is a, is a class of drugs, the class of antibiotics called fluoroquinolones. So these are drugs like ciprofloxacin, um, moxifloxacin, drugs like that. Um, they came, they've been on the market for almost 30 years now and it was actually almost 40 years but it took till about 2008 so we're talking 12 years ago when the first warning was issued and it was a warning issued in australia that the drug can increase your risk of tendon rupture and a lot of people were the tendons in their achilles heels would go they some people would become irreversibly crippled and i'm talking not that you're really? taking a drug every day. You're taking a course of antibiotics that might last a week or two weeks. And people became crippled by this uh, tendons when your tendons disintegrate. And there's a, but it took, it took almost 20 years that those drugs were on the market before any country issued uh, a warning. Um, that tendon rupture uh, warning is still not found in Canada. Uh, you can see it in the U.S. Uh, 
Um, but by the way, the fluoroquinolones have a incredibly long list of um, of problems, not just tendon uh, tendon problems, but uh, it can cause some people to have neurological problems. There's um, there's just some very serious adverse effects related to that class of drugs. Right. It's not like a tendon rupture is a common thing. It's not like high blood pressure or maybe uh, insomnia or depression. I mean, this is something where there should there's probably a very strong causation or cause correlation between the drug and tendon rupture, which seems to me is something that should be advised everywhere. Yes. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the potential serious adverse reactions to these drugs are, are really quite, quite shocking. And the fact that they're still being widely used, um, I mean, there are many older, safer antibiotics in the market but still, uh, I calculated that last year in British Columbia alone, there were 160,000 people prescribed a fluoroquinolone. Wow. Despite what I would consider to be a long list. Uh, I mean, if you want, I can go through all of the, the dangers associated with those drugs. But so this is why it's really important. And, and for your listeners, if, if uh, people are wondering, what should I do? If you're ever prescribed a drug, you should always check to see if there is a warning associated with it. And you can do it quite easily. You go to Health Canada, you just type drug advisory or drug warning, um, and to see if there is a Health Canada or you know a US FDA uh, warning issued about that drug. These warnings, whenever they pull a drug off the market, it's usually because the warning system has failed. And I can give you a dozen examples of drugs in the past that the, the, the serious adverse events are starting to appear. The regulator issues a warning. The prescribing doesn't slow down. People are still using them. And, and the regulator takes the drug off the market. It's very hard to do. It doesn't happen very often. And of course, the manufacturers fight that tooth and nail um, all the way. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, you, 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 you should always check to see if your drug has uh, any warnings uh, issued uh, in relation to it. But if I hear you correct, also you should be checking in other major countries such as Australia, UK, and US to see if there's advisories there. Yes. And the yeah. list goes on. I... Those are the major English-speaking countries. I, I, I just find that absolutely fascinating that there doesn't have to be that common communication to the entire market of that particular drug and how it can be country-based that seems it seems criminal and it seems like our government should be doing a better job at regulating our health and if if we are to believe that they have our health in their best interest well then that certainly is counterintuitive well i mean what other industries let's say um you talk about the automobile automobile industry let's say you've got a a car where you discover the brakes are failing and, you know, we have a system, a transportation safety system that is pretty good at saying, okay, they go to the manufacturer, I don't know, say they go to GM and say, there's been these cases of brakes failing in this model of your car. You have to fix them or you have to compensate people. But they don't just do it in the U.S. They do it wherever the car is sold, right? Presumably. Of course. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like the brake. Well, the brakes fail only for Canadians that drive them, but not for Americans. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> so, what is the what's the solution then to this drug safety advisory? And is your team able to come up with any any optimism for the future about how this can be rectified? Um, yes. I mean, we've published, the team's published about four papers already and, uh, they're building a website that you can search a searchable website. And, uh, um, once that's up, I'll come back on your, on your, on your program and, and talk through how to find it and, and what it does and that kind of thing, because it's a, we're going to, we're going to make it available somewhere. We're not sure where yet. Um, but, uh, so, at least if you had uh, been prescribed a drug in one of these four countries, you can search, see, well, even if you're not in one of these four countries, you can search and see where advisories has, have been issued. Great. Well, that sounds wonderful. And I'd be happy to have you back on when that comes out. Okay. And I really appreciate you taking the time this morning to, to talk about these important things. I think there's a lot that we are hearing from the mainstream media that... Uh, is is leading us to believe one thing, but I know there's a lot of experts who are kind of pointing out flaws and, and problems that aren't being covered by the media. So I think it's really important to have these conversations and let people choose for themselves what what it is that they find to be important and, and just empower them to make their own decisions, which is why I'm really happy to have guests like you on the show. Excellent. I will put your books in the show note, and I highly recommend those. They're incredible reading, even even with Selling Sickness being 15 years old. It is so yeah. relevant still today. So thank you for those bodies of work and for doing all the research that you've done over the years. And again, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Okay. Thank you. Nice talking to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Alan Castles. Check your local bookseller for Alan's books, Selling Sickness and Seeking Sickness, to continue exploring a different perspective on the drug industry. Also, follow Alan on Twitter at AKECastles. That's A-K-E-C-A-S-S-E-L-S. Check the show notes. If you want to learn more about how drugs are personally impacting you or your patients and loved ones, you won't want to miss Rosemary Pierce's upcoming online course on food, drug, herb, nutrient interactions and depletions. Sign up for the PacificRimCollege.online newsletter to receive more details about the November 24th launch of this course and to get 40% off during the launch. Plus two free mini lessons. If you are interested in studying holistic medicine, Pacific Rim College offers some of the most recognized and credible programs in the world. Visit PacificRimCollege.com to learn more. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, keep asking the hard questions and be prepared for even harder answers.